Before we begin, I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to see once again the beauty of the plan of redemption and its simplicity. Help us to understand how we are to be like you this in this morning's presentation, to be holy. Thank you very much for making this provision from all eternity past. In Jesus' name, amen. Last evening, we had looked at an illustration that has helped me explain this assurance of salvation with the idea of an employee-employer knowing the expectations, then seeing the process by which we meet those expectations, and then actually seeing the promises by which we can meet each one of those expectations. And so what we want to do this morning is actually approach this morning's topic, Be Holy, from that th- same three uh, format structure. So what we're going to look at first is to make sure we're clear from the Bible what the expectation is. And what you're seeing on your screen is a little picture of a gentleman here smiling at a law that used to condemn him. And so the expectation that our Heavenly Father has is to be holy. That's just a biblical theological word that means to be in constant agreement with God. Um, So the question is, given that expectation, what is the process by which we are like Christ in this respect? So what we're going to do is actually look at the four steps that we have this morning in this section of the expectation, be holy. It actually begins, like all the steps do, we'll, we will discuss this morning, this, this afternoon as well, that we begin with Christ. So what we're going to do is look at a scripture here on your screen, and it shows that when Isaiah, if we look at Isaiah chapter 5, we see Isaiah correctly under inspiration telling a nation, woe against that nation, woe against this nation, etc., etc., But it wasn't until chapter 6 when we pick up this verse that we actually see that Isaiah realized, yes, those nations are out of harmony. They're not holy. But when he saw Christ for himself, listen to the language change. It says here, Isaiah 6, 1 and 5, in the year the king Isaiah died, what does it say? I saw the Lord. It didn't say my grandparents saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. And notice the difference that it made when he actually saw it. Look at verse 5. Then said I, what? What was my grandparents? What was the GC president? What was me? When I go from my self-righteousness to beholding Christ, my experience is the same thing. When I, not my parents, see Christ for myself in this law of the mirror, I begin to realize, oh, I'm undone. I can have all the eloquence, I can have all the beauty, I can have all the handsomeness, I can have all of whatever this world says is a value. But when I stand in front of that mirror myself and I see my Savior reflected to me, I begin to see I'm a man undone. So the very first step is to actually see for myself that Christ is holy and by contrast to Him, I am not. And so in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, we see this serpent illustration where they got pretty confident 
about their victories, and they lost confidence in God. And so at that point, God said, all right, I will allow these serpents that are actually around you, I will remove my protecting hand from you, and you will actually be bitten from these serpents. And so a long story short, God gave them a serpent, and what was the instruction? Look and live. And so what we have here is, again, the same thing. Until I see for myself that I am a man undone. Every topic, every time we listen at Sabbath school, church, week of prayer, it's a meaningless debate. But when I see I need Christ, then all of a sudden it makes a difference in my life. So the question then is, given what we saw in that illustration with the employer-employee, we saw that until that employee knew not only what the expectation was, but that it was simple, reasonable, and doable, he wasn't doing it. And so we've started with the goal is to be in constant agreement with God. The first step is to behold Christ. And so the next logical question is, now that we know his expectation to behold Christ, look and live, the question to be asked is, is that step here simple, reasonable, and doable? And the next question would be, how many of us can actually look and live? A child can do that. And so again, you see the process, expectation, be holy, the step, look at Christ, how many can do that? Even a child with reasoning powers can look at Christ and live. I want to take a look at this next slide. This is rather interesting. Does Romans 6.23 say... The wages of the large sins are death, but the small ones aren't. Is that how your Bible reads? Or how about this one? This one strikes a little, home, a little bit closer to home for me. The wages of others' sins are death, but not mine. Is that how it reads? No. Instead, what Romans 6 verse 23 says, the wages of all sin is death. The little ones in my life and the large ones my sins and other sins. In other words, until I come to Christ and see for myself who I am in front of that mirror, it's everybody else that needs Christ. Their sins are wrong. Hitler's wrong, but I'm okay. Little bitty bad sins, eh, but it's not, it's not that deadly. But when I realize the impact here, I go from woe is that nation, like Isaiah said in, in um, Isaiah, 1, Isaiah chapter 5, to woe is me. Let's look at another slide that says the same thing. When this understanding comes to my mind, it produces two very healthy attitudes in my mind. Number one, the understanding that my sins cost the death of Christ are just as offensive to God as the ones I perceive in the vilest offender. And here's an illustration I would like to pause and, and share with, with each one of you here. I don't know how many of you have read the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye, excellent book, Joshua Harris. He tells a story of going down before he was married in one of the streets here in America. Uh, he was walking along a river, a guy full of, a, a carload of, of guys wa uh, drove by and whistled at him. And he thought, they're gay. And it just crawled all over him. This is disgusting. Well, one of the characteristics of God and the Holy Spirit is their gentleness. So after he got back to his room that evening, the Holy Spirit gently tapped him on the shoulder and said, Josh, do you remember how offensive and repulsive your, the, their homosexual lust crawled all over you? He said, yes. He said, do you realize that your heterosexual lust is just as offensive to God 
Do you see, until I see that I am a vile sinner outside of Christ, this topic this morning is just another debate. But when I see I need Christ, it makes a world of difference. And then notice when I see an offending brother, what happens? What happens? A humble attitude, I approach fellow brothers and sisters at the foot of the cross. That is, I no longer approach others with an air of superiority as if their sins were more offensive to God than mine. The step number one in coming to full harmony with God is I have to see I am a sinner. That is a number one step. Number one step. Now that God has helped me see that, what's the next step? What's the next step? It's to confess and forsake my sins. Look at this verse. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them shall have no consequences. Is that what it says? It says he will have mercy. And this is one of the warnings our Heavenly Father kindly gives us. I can understand this mercy now more as being a parent with our three-year-old daughter. Um, before is abstract theological debate. Now I understand that there is mercy and justice. But anyway, uh, so what we have here is this. Notice that God in His fatherly heart says, I can forgive any sin, but there are sometimes some, some things that we do will have consequences for life. That's why it's worded this way. It says, he that confesses and forsakes his sin may live with the consequences for life like David did, but you will have mercy. You will have mercy. So how many people can take this step? Everyone can. Every person who comes to the foot of the cross and says, I am a sinner, can choose to let sin go. So let's take a look at the next step, and that is to accept Christ. And I'm looking forward to actually getting down to the promise section like we did last night. We had expectation, then process, then promise, because there are some really rich promises that go along with this step right here. This step is well known. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I really like this verse here uh, from the translator's perspective. There was one translator that was having a difficulty in the 1900s translating this verse into a language. I don't remember the language, but for their language, they did not have the word believe. And he thought, now here is a key verse that people need to understand. What are we going to use in place of this very critical word? And he came up with, I believe, with the Holy Spirit's power, uh, help, the word lean your entire weight. So if we reread this, this makes a whole lot of difference. It says, God so loved the world that whosoever leans their entire weight on, their, on the Lamb of God, that person will find pardon and forgiveness. So the next question is, is this step simple? I mean, how many people in the world, black, white, rich, poor, child, old, simple, PhD, how many people can accept Christ? Everyone can. So here's the expectation, be holy, meaning to be in full agreement with God. This is the third step of accepting Christ. It's a simple, simple step, and children can also follow this. Look at the fourth and final step in this process, and we'll move on to the promises, because these promises are absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Obey Christ. Hebrews 5, 9, 
And being made perfect, he, referring to Christ, became the what? The author of salvation to whom? Those who obey him. Therefore, from your Bible, do you see that there is no way we can separate salvation and obedience? What God is doing is he is bringing back into us a desire to obey him. And so he is showing that this step of obedience is necessary. But the question arises in our minds, where do we obey? This is one of the the areas that the devil likes to trip uh, Christians up on. And they think he he plays on a false assumption. The, uh, The false assumption is that somewhere in my walk with Christ, I will come to the place that in my flesh... I'll never be tempted, but that's not true. Notice how many times Paul speaks about the mind. If you're taking notes, just write down Romans chapter 12, verse 2. What does it say? Be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Your mind is renewable. Your mind is renewable. The flesh is not. That will be taken away at the second coming. So notice that God is wanting us to obey Him, but where? In the mind. Notice Romans 7, 25. This is in the chapter that he says... What I don't want to do, I do. What I don't want to do, I do. And so he's coming down to a conclusion in this chapter, and it's at this point where we find the place where God the Father and the Son want us to obey. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with what? My mind. My mind, I do what? I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. When Joseph was, pent, uh, was tempted by Potiphar's wife, his flesh said, yield. His mind said, pause. There's a higher law than the law of my flesh that says, do not yield. And in his mind, he had the opportunity to choose. Shall I choose in my mind to yield to the flesh? Or will I, in my mind, choose to serve the law of God? And that is the place where the devil seeks to attack every person, especially um, teenagers. So this is one of the reasons why we're to fill our mind with the character of Christ because at that, at that location in the person's mind, the person gets to choose. And the devil cannot force any one of us to choose to, do, uh, to disobey. And so is this a simple step? Yes. How many can understand that step? Even a child can do, to do that. So here we have, again, the expectation is the first item is to be holy, meaning to be in constant agreement with God. We've gone through these steps, and now what I want us to do is the last uh, section here. I want us to take a look and feast our minds on promises, both in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and they're very, very rich. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, God has made us what? Accepted. That's the atonement. Uh, for a theological term, at, atonement means at one meant. In other words, through the process that we just simply Breathed, uh, uh, over, uh, took an overview, we actually see how we're brought from out of harmony to harmony to being one with God again. So biblically, he says, you are accepted in the beloved. But I want you to look at this quotation. This is absolutely powerful. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 32, that's paragraph 3 through par- page 33, paragraph 0. We are not to be anxious about what God and Christ think of us, but about what? What God thinks of Christ, our substitute. You are accepted in the beloved. That's incredible. When you realize that when we have taken those steps, God thinks of you 
like he thinks of his son. And does he find any flaw in Christ? None. Then through Christ, how many flaws does he find in you? None. That's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Do you begin to realize, are you noticing that in your mind, you're seeing a different, wonderful picture of your heavenly father with his expectations that are simple, reasonable, and doable? In your mind, the prince of life, Christ, and the prince of darkness are seeking to work to your mind via knowledge. And it's interesting that Mrs. White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that the two things the devil could use in the great controversy that God could not are flattery and deception. His strength is deception. Christ's strength is the truth. Watch some more of these quotations. These are just absolutely rich. Look at this. Steps to Christ, 62. Christ's character stands in place of your character. Have you ever thought your, your character is flawed? And you're, you're correct. But whose character is in place of yours? Christ's. This is incredible. You are accepted before God just as though what? You had never sinned. Now this is something I had written a while back, and I, I, I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it. it, it to me, it's very powerful. When God stands, Christ stands before the law, how many flaws does the law find in him? None. So when you and I are standing before this law, clothed in Christ's righteousness, how many flaws does the law find in us now? Same number, none. Let's take a look at this next quotation. This is encouraging as well. This is the messenger, May 10, 1893. If we are Christ's, our title to the heavenly inheritance is what? Without a flaw. Are you beginning to see that our heavenly Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit have made expectations we can understand and they're simple, reasonable, and doable, and we can meet them through Christ. It's just, when we begin to see that, it, just, it, it does a revolutionary number on our minds. And in harmony with the provisions of the covenant of grace, through grace we may be able to make the calling and election, our calling and election sure, putting on the excellency of Christ in spirit and character. Notice another one. Desire of ages. Christ answers us, the Father beholds not your faulty character, but he sees you as clothed in what? My perfection. Think of this. What is his expectation? Be in harmony, constant harmony with me. Steps, see I'm a sinner, confess my sins, forsake them, accept Christ's life and death in my place, and then commit to obeying him, and Christ's character stands in place of my character. This is not a theological debate. This is, this is real stuff. Let me just go on to this next slide. This is rather interesting too, this last part. This is Steps to Christ 52. Through the simple act of believing God, the Holy Spirit has begotten a new life in your heart. You are as a child born into the family of God. And what does this say? He loves you as much as he loves his son. Well, that's incredible. How much does God love his son? 50%? 100%. And he loves you just like he loves his son. I mean, this is, this is just incredible. This next slide I really find very helpful. I had understood this part, but I hadn't understood this, this next part. Do you realize that the justification by faith is actually an exchange of robes, of garments? And the, I'm, I'm looking forward to your seeing what's going to be in here. 
When you and I accept Christ, our guilt and our sin death penalty goes from us to our high priest, Christ. And he gives us in exchange his innocence and his life. What's God's expectation? That we are in constant harmony with him. And what is the exchange by his own provision? He says, if you will accept me and transfer onto me your guilt, I will die as if I were you. And I will give you my innocence. That's incredible. This is, the, this is one of the reasons why Christianity stands out without peer of all the pagan religions. Why? Because their gods in the pagan religions demand of its subjects payment for the subject's offenses. But what do we see about the God of heaven? He says, don't disobey, but if you do, I, your God, will die in your place. He's a God without peer. A God without peer. And notice this. Notice this quotation. It's tiny, but I want you to look at it specifically right down here. It says, Signs of the Times. The um, sins of men were charged to Christ, and innocent though he was, he. Um, let me move over here. So it's a little easier to see. Innocent though he was, he engaged to suffer for the guilty that through faith in Him the world might be saved. Oh, what compassion and love are here revealed. Are you beginning to see the character of Christ? The character of Christ. This is what appeals to our mind and then flows out in power to obey. We're going to see that more specifically in the sermon this morning. Here revealed how... Um, how is humanity exalted through the merits of Christ? His sacrifice was ample and complete. The Holy One died instead of the guilty. And notice this. This is absolutely powerful. He, Christ, clothed Himself in our filthy garments. It's not just that He gives me His innocent garments. I give to Him my filthy garments. That's an exchange of garments. It's not one-sided. I give him my guilt. He gives me his innocence. How much more can I be in compliance with my Heavenly Father's expectation to be holy than what he made provision through his Son? This is not an academic theological debate. This is a reality that you and I can have every day. Expectation, be holy, process. See, I'm a sinner. Confess and forsake my sin. Accept his life in place of my life. Commit to obeying Him, and this is what He's doing for me. This is powerful. Look at this next slide. I love this next slide. Who's in that picture? Hitler. He is one of the ones that I know of in the, the, the uh, 1900s that what I would classify as clearly one of the vilest wretches this world has ever seen. But do you realize... One of the people groups, not the only one, because Hitler did actually attack more people than the Jews. But one of the people groups that, that, that Hitler attacked was the Jewish nation where our Savior came from. Do you realize that our Savior, with all the Auschwitz atrocities that, that, um, that Hitler had, and he thereby received just abhorrence from the world. Do you realize that if Hitler would have come to Christ and said, I will exchange my horrible robes for your spotless righteousness, 
our Savior, your Savior and mine would have gladly gone and taken all of the remorse, all the disgust of Hitler's garments, worn them with joy to Calvary and exchanged Hitler's garments for his own purity. What does that do for your heart? Showing you the character of God. This is awesome. God is not a tyrant. He's, an, he's awesome. He would forgive Hitler. He would forgive this will continue to work. Hitler, he'll forgive Moses, he'll forgive David, he will forgive Elijah, and lest we become too superior in our estimation, he will forgive us. But notice this, once the transfer of guilt of penalty is done, whom does the law see as guilty? He sees, ironically, the law does, that the guilty to be punished is Christ, the innocent one. Whom does the law see as innocent, reserving life? Us. Talk about the condescension of the God of heaven. This is incredible. What a transfer. What a trade. What a God we serve. I want you to read this next quotation with me. This is incredible. I suppose this isn't good on camera, but I apologize. But this touches the speaker in a deep way. Review and Herald. The gulf made by sin has been bridged. All may, be, may come boldly to the throne of grace, seeking help in every time of need. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took the place of the sinner that he might present the repentant sinner to the Father, saying, Lay his guilt on me. I don't know what you have that you need to lay on someone, but would you lay your dirtiest, filthiest, rottenest sin on your best friend? And God is infinitely better than your best friend, and he willingly says, Lay it on me. Lay it on me. I have espoused his cause, Holding out his hands, bearing the marks of his crucifixion, the Savior says, and notice the Father is speaking to the, to the I mean the Son is speaking to the Father. I have, a grave, I have engraved the people here at Heritage Academy on the palms of my hands. No longer look upon them as guilty. Let them stand before you. What? Guiltless. For I have borne their iniquity. At the cross, justice and mercy met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. God bowed his head in recognition of the completeness of the offering made for sin and said, it is enough. Do you realize this is why cheap grace is not biblical? There's nothing about grace that's cheap. God doesn't just say, okay, you are my son, you're my daughter, um, it's not the neighbor's kid, we'll just ru uh, brush your, your sins under the carpet. I can understand this more as a parent now because there are things that I'm much more lenient on in my three-year-old daughter than I would tolerate from other kids. Why? Because you have the dynamic of the love of a parent. But do you realize that when it came to my sins and Christ, God said, I love Jimmy so much, I am either going to punish him or punish my Savior. And God the Father has had a relationship with His Son, 
Jesus Christ for an eternity longer than I've had with our wonderful little daughter, three-year-old Melanie. And he doesn't turn to, to Christ and say, oh, well, I'm just going to brush it under the rug. No, he says, the debt penalty of Jimmy must be paid, and my son will receive full brunt of my justice. You see, in other words, for my sin to be pardoned, it's not just pushed under the rug. It's actually paid for by Christ himself. That's incredible. Now, knowing this, knowing this, let's look at the next several slides. Do you realize that when you and I understand that the God of heaven is not just the Son, it's the God of heaven who willingly joined this pack that I will save mankind do you realize the self-respect that you have? You are not a worm to grovel in the dust any longer. Look at these quotations and these verses. Watch this. Let's look at, let's back up to that other one. Just a moment, I went too fast. Just wanting to make sure I'm keeping in, in sync with time. I have a clock up here, so I want to make sure we're respecting that. Think of King David after he his affair, lying and murder, could he ever lift his head up before God without shame before the law he violated? Through Christ, yes. Watch this. Notice what Paul says, Romans 12, 3. I say through the grace given unto me, there's that grace again, to every man that is among you not to think of himself highly. Is that what it says? What does your Bible say? Don't think more highly. That says you, through Christ, have every reason to think highly of yourself. How can you not, when you see the God of the universe stooping to take your death and mine, you are of infinite value, infinite value. Look at what this says, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor, period. Is that what it says? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are to love yourself. You are to have a high regard for yourself. Not higher, but high. Because the Prince of Life died for you. Now, having shown this biblically, I want to take you through some quotations that say the same thing. And before we do, I, I just remember this one right here. Revelation 3, 4. What does it say? They shall walk with me because I'm worthy. Is that what it says? They shall work, walk with me in white because they are worthy. He doesn't die for trash. Look at this next quotation. This is just absolutely breathtaking. The, this is Desire of Ages 668. The Lord is disappointed when His people place a low estimate upon themselves. He desires His chosen heritage to value themselves according to, uh, according to the P, um, price He has paid upon, uh, placed upon them. God wanted them, else he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to redeem them. He has a use for them, and he is well pleased when they make the very highest demands upon him, that they may glorify his name. They may expect great things if they have faith in his promises. Do you realize you don't need to hold your head low, but high through Christ? Notice this next one. I, this one is really choice. I, I really appreciate the balance of the spirit of prophecy right here. Take a look at this one. Volume 3, 506. If you form too high an opinion of yourself, you will think 
that your labors are of more real consequence than they are, and you will plead individual independence, which borders on arrogance. If you go to the other extreme and form too low an opinion of yourself, you will feel inferior and will leave an impression of inferiority which will greatly limit the influence that you might have for good. You should avoid either extreme. Feelings should not control you. Circumstances should not affect you. You may, have a, you may form a correct estimate of yourself, one which will prove a safeguard from both extremes. You may be dignified without vain self-confidence. You may be condescending and yielding without sacrificing self-respect and individual or individual independence, and your life will be of great influence with those in the higher as well as the lower walks of life. This is incredible. Think of what, what Einstein would have done if he would have thought, I'm more brainy in math than anybody else. Oh, I, I need to cower down. This tells us he can form a correct opinion of himself. What, think of what would have happened if the other extreme would have been, oh, I'm just intelligent beyond measure in math. The balance is he can form a correct picture of his abilities and say, I'm going to use every ounce of whatever God has given me for God's glory. That's the proper balance. Look at this one. This is incredible. The upward look, 237. We must not demerit ourselves and lightly esteem the ability given us of God. Neither should we overestimate our own importance and trust to our human ability. That's incredible. Take a look at this next one. Be like Jesus. You are the Lord's property, His by creation and His by redemption. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of self-respect for the property of the Lord is here brought to view. And this will lead to respect for the obligations which every human being is under to preserve the living machinery that is uh, so fearfully and wonderfully made. This living machinery is to be understood. Every part of it, its wonderful mechanism is to be carefully um, studied. And notice what this says. Self-preservation is here um, uh, to be practiced. So again, do you see that when you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you don't need to hold yourself in low value. You have every reason to be in high esteem through Christ. One more on this topic, and then we'll, we'll um, review as we close. Testimonies to Ministers 519. It should not be difficult to remember that the Lord desires you to lay your troubles and perplexities at his feet and leave them there. Go to him saying, Lord, my burdens are too heavy for me to carry. Will you bear them for me? And he will answer, I will take them. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you. I will take your sins and will give you peace. Banish no longer your what? Your self-respect. For I have bought you with the price of my own blood. You are mine. Your weakened will I will strengthen. Your remorse for sin I will remove. This is the Father and the Son speaking as one. I love you, He says. I love you, I love you. Skip this next slide. It's too tiny. Basically, what it says, and I'll just mention that for purposes of 
uh, for your benefit. The um, tell you what, like, let's do this for a moment. I guess we can just leave that up. Basically, what that previous quotation said, and if you want it, I can give that to you afterwards. Basically, uh, I don't know how many of you know Elder Spangler, but Elder Spangler, when he was your age, went out as a call porter and was sharing biblical truth through many books that we sell. And someone said, well, I challenge your Christ. He said, what do you mean? He said, basically, you as a Christian say, because Christ died on the cross, then he, that's the reason why he's your Savior. He said, do you realize that my... I don't know that he said God, but in other words, the one that he followed actually has suffered a horrible physical death. So what's your Christ have on my Savior? And at that time, he was stumped. What that quotation is saying is that if the, if the, the sufferings of Christ were limited to just the physical, yes, then any martyr could be equal on a par with, with Christ. But what's the difference between Christ's suffering and, ma- and, and um, man's suffering? According to Isaiah 53, it says that he, God the Father, laid on him, his son, the iniquity of us all. I mean, let's think about this. The emotional weight that was on him was crushing. Absolutely crushing. I mean, just think of this in practical terms. You get a phone call, a friend of yours, their parents just got a divorce. That's one emotional weight on you. Someone else had a tragedy. They lost their house. Another place, a missionary lost her life. I mean, how many of these can your emotions bear up until it just collapses? 10, 15, 20? How about you're hanging on the cross and you are now taking the emotional weight of every Hitler Every difficulty, it would be absolutely crushing. Your Savior stands out without peer, well beyond the physical torture that he went through. He took the emotional weight of everyone in this world. And so if you ever have a challenge from someone, if you go out and do mega booking or whatever it is that that, uh, kind of presentations that you do, if someone challenges you, I hope that that may provide you something that, that Elder Spangler found out later and and shared, and I I want to share that with you. But this part right here before we, this is the next to the last slide, I want us to think about. So many times we can think, well, I've done these steps. Think of what she says under inspiration here. This is Signs of the Times, May 9, 1892. How many of you say, I have prayed, I have tried, I have struggled, and I do not see that that I advance one step? What is the struggle? What is the trouble? Have you not thought that you are earning something, that you were by your struggles and works paying the price of your redemption? Isn't that incredible? Isn't it interesting the devil takes us from one ditch to the other? Either Christ is going to do everything or I've got to pay the sin debt. When I take these steps, I'm simply complying with the conditions that God gives us. So let's take a look at this last slide here. We started last evening with this illustration of the expectation, the process, and the promises, and so we're going to simply review, like many times many presenters have done, begin with what they're going to share, share it, and then we're going to do a recap. And so we're recapping this morning's presentation right here in this slide. The expectation is to be holy, meaning to be in constant agreement with Christ. What's the process? It starts with beholding Christ through His Ten Commandments. 
seeing that I am in need of forgiveness. Not my mother, not my brother, not the GC president. I have a need, and I confess, I accept Christ, His life in place of my life, His death in place of my death, and then commit to obeying. And what's the promise? I am totally accepted and complete with God. Expectation, be holy. I go from here to here through this process, and the promises are rich in both the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. You can hold your head up no matter what your, your past sins have been to this point and what you may do in the future. So hopefully this, this morning you will actually see, again, expectation. That's simple. That's reasonable. That's doable through Christ. And begin with God's help to do these steps now in the known to go from here to here because both the Father and the Son have made that possible. Father, we want to thank you for um, your blessing of showing us the covering of your righteousness that you gladly developed in all the eternity past, you, the Father, and the Son together, and then offered that to us. Help us to never be tempted to say, my sins are so bad that my heavenly Savior would not cover mine. Help us to accept daily His provision and His robe and love Him because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.